My name now is Isaac Zelik Zeman. The name has changed throughout my life. Uh, I was born Zelik Zeman. I was born in Riga, the capital of Latvia, in 1920, 70 years ago. And uh, the Latvians at that time were very nationalistic, and they wanted all names to uh, be Latvicized. So my name became Zelix Tsimanis. When the war ended, I was leaving Poland uh, to go to um, Czechoslovakia, and as I was crossing the border, uh, I was put together with another group of Jews, and I was given then the name Yitzhak. And I like the name because Yitzhak means he will laugh. You're listening to Those Who Were There, Voices from the Holocaust, a podcast that draws on recorded interviews from Yale University's Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies. I'm Eleanor Risa. Isaac Zeman grew up in the small Latvian town of Livani and was the oldest of four children. Isaac's father owned a grocery store. He taught Torah on the side and was a cantor at the synagogue that the family attended. His mother wasn't a believer, but she kept a traditional home for his father's sake. When Isaac was 10 years old, he joined a Zionist youth group called Gordonia. He was leading the Livani chapter by the time he was 15. Isaac's parents couldn't afford to send him to university, so he attended a two-year teacher's institute instead. When he was 19, he became the head of Gordonia's Riga branch and devoted himself to socialist Zionism. But when Nazi Germany attacked the Soviet Union in 1941, Isaac began an odyssey that took him across the Soviet Union twice and across Europe, by the time the war had ended. It is now August 1st, 1990, and Isaac Zeman is seated against a black backdrop in a makeshift studio at the Museum of Jewish Heritage's office in Midtown Manhattan. Isaac has a brown mustache and a goatee that's mostly silver. His narrow eyes are set off by dark eyebrows and a deeply furrowed forehead. He's wearing a lavender-colored shirt. Isaac's interviewers are Toby Bloom-Dobkin and Devorah Mann. Toby begins by asking Isaac about Livani. Would you be able to just give us a, a description of your town that, that you were living in, that you're from, actually? It was a small town. The main street were mostly stores and nearly all were owned by Jews. There were four synagogues in the town. There were only Orthodox synagogues, of course. There were all um, 
all colors of Jewish opinion or ideology. There were the Orthodox, there were Zionists, there were labor Zionists, there were Orthodox Zionists, there were Orthodox anti-Zionists, there were Bundists and there were Communists. But everybody went to Shul because this was the social place to meet. Um, and the relationship between the Jews and the Latvians were not close, not socializing, kind of tolerating each other. But there was anti-Semitism. The war came to Latvia in '41, when the Germans attacked the Soviet Union. And um, uh, one morning, uh, some communist officials came to our family home and uh, they they wanted to mobilize my father uh, to uh, they mobilized people to build obstacles against the advancing German tanks and then my mother thought that it would be better if I would go and if the father would stay with the family so I I may have been somewhat hurt by that but I went and then during the night when we were working in the in the forest, we heard bombs falling. And then later in the same night, we were told that we can go home. And um, I went home, and uh, I knocked, and there was no answer. So I assumed that my parents had come somewhere to hide from the bombing. So I grabbed a bicycle, and the bombs were falling, and there were other Jews trying to, were moving. And I went to synagogues, and I asked uh, whether anybody has heard of a family tzimman, and nobody had heard of a family tzimman. And then I met accidentally a group of Jews that were going toward Russia. So I joined that group. And the Russians put us on trains, and they led us to uh, Chelyabinskaya Oblast, which is uh, near, the Ural, near the Ural Mountains. And uh, it was a problem to, um, to survive that trip because we had nothing. Whatever people had in the group, like watches or jewelry or whatever, they gave away for food and that's how the whole group survived and when we came to Chelyabinsk we were sent to a kolkhoz a collective farm called Svabodny Trud which means free labor and we were free laborers we were laborers that were only given to eat but not paid anything else and we were given work to dig ditches which we did and then the winter approached and we had no winter clothes. So we went and we asked for winter clothes. So we were told by the authorities that there, there was no winter clothes. But they said, we can give you permission to go to Central Asia where it's warm and where one does not need winter clothes. I suppose they didn't know what to do with us. They didn't need us to feed us. So they were probably just as happy to get rid of us so we went all to Central Asia, and on the way, my friend Leibele Plakhin from Karslava, 
he had finished a language institute and I had finished a teacher's institute. So he said, why do we have to work so very hard? Maybe we could become teachers. So when we arrived in Kazakhstan, both of us went to the capital of Kazakhstan, Alma-Ata. And we said that we are teachers and they said the only kind of teachers they needed was foreign language teachers. We said, yes, we could teach German. And we were both sent to two different schools in Kazakhstan at the other end, at the western end of Kazakhstan. I still remember the trip lasted about a week to get from the capital of Kazakhstan in the east near Mongolia to the place near the Caspian Sea where I was assigned to be a teacher. It was very poor and everybody spoke a language I didn't understand. I was very involved with my students and my, my teaching. I remember one night, you know, I had not believed in God. I had rebelled. At the age of 13, I, had, I rebelled against studying Talmud, and I didn't believe. And this was a big conflict between me and my father. And I remember one night going out, and I was so lonely, and I started praying. I started talking to God, God, um, help me that the war should be over, I could be back home. I was very much longing for peace and for being back with my family, my friends. And then one evening I heard a friend of that Felcher talking about Jews, how the Jews are hiding in the back in the hinterland while our Russian boys are dying on the frontier. And that that hurt me very badly and touched me. And so I decided to volunteer to the Red Army. When was it? Um, this uh, must have been in uh, either the end of 41 or the beginning of 42. There was a political commissar in my company and he used to use me as an example of what is bad. I was not like the others. I was slow, I was compulsively clean. Like, look at this guy who was raised in a capitalist country and look what the poor soldier he is. And then came an order that all people who were born in capitalist countries should be taken out of the army and should be sent into forced labor battalions. This may have saved my life. So I became a forced laborer in Stalingrad. In these forced labor battalions, there were also quite a few Jews from Poland, from Romania, and so on. I heard a group of Jews singing of Inu Malkeinu, and this was sung with so much feeling that I, I'll never forget it till I die. This was very moving how the Jews were singing, uh, God, our King, have mercy on us and, and redeem us. These were probably all people separated from their families. And then one day we were sent to a small uh, railway station near Stalingrad where we had to unload coal from a train and we were not given any food. At the end of the day, I was, I was very hungry. 
So I went to a collective farm to steal potatoes, and I went to sleep in the field. When I woke up the next morning, my whole group was gone, and I was all alone there without papers. So I went to Stalingrad, and I was caught by police, and I told them the story, what happened. And then I was put together with a small group of people, and we were traveling about 10 days, maybe. We survived by stealing uh, melons, watermelons and sugar melons, mostly watermelons, from collective farms and eating them. And then we arrived and we were in Siberia. And we were told, it doesn't matter what you were before, you may have been doctors, you may have been lawyers, engineers, here you will all work in the mines. And we worked in the coal mines. We had to stay in the mine until the quota of work was done. It didn't matter how long. And when the work was finished, then we walked from the mine. All my clothes was wet when I got out of the mine. And as I walked, all the clothes froze. I remember a lot of hunger. The food was very poor. Very watery soup. Very little bread. That was all. And then one day, I think accidentally somebody hit me in the uh, hit me in my face, and I was bleeding. And I got to the ambulance, and a Jewish woman, doctor, saw me, uh, and she was amazed how I looked. I had lost a lot of weight, so I was sent to Kyrgyzia, which is a neighboring country to Kazakhstan in Central Asia in the south. And I was sent to a, again to a kolkhoz. And um, I remember during this whole time when I was in Siberia and also in the beginning of my time in Kyrgyzia, I felt that I had lost my humanity because before the war I was very idealistic. I enjoyed literature and music and all kinds of things. And, but uh, I had become a different person and I had thought of myself that I had become an animal because all I was interested in was sleeping and eating. Nothing else interested me. So I thought I had lost my humanity forever. So it was a wonderful experience to discover after a while in Kyrgyzia in that village that my human feelings came back. It's like resurrection, like you know, like a new life. I, start, I, began, I became interested in a book, and I became interested in a girl. That happened in that village in Kyrgyzia after I had gotten lots of food. One of the things I remember from that period of my life is that I taught a group of workers in the field. I was in the field because I was weighing the grain. I taught a group of workers a Hebrew song in Kyrgyz. The Hebrew song is Heiveti Shalom Aleichem. So this became Albkeldem Salam Aleikum because Kyrgyz had some Arabic words, Salam Aleikum. Albkeldem means Heiveti, I brought Albkeldem. So we sang together in Kyrgyz, Albkeldem Salam Aleikum. And then I was sent to a military factory in Kuybyshev on the Volga. 
and I was a forced laborer in a military factory. Um, at one time, I became depressed, and I went to see a Soviet psychiatrist. And that woman said to me, you need a goal. And I thought about it. What could be a goal for me? And then I thought, to leave the Soviet Union. So I figured out, the only way I could leave the Soviet Union is if I could become a Pole. I was a Soviet citizen, and as a Soviet citizen, I could never leave the Soviet Union. So I talked to some Jewish guys from Poland, and I asked them to show me the Polish alphabet. Then I went to the library, and I took out a Polish book and the same book in Russian. And then, when I worked in the factory during the day, I used the time by trying to acquire some Polish vocabulary. I went to the Soviet police and I said, I'm Zygmunt Tobiansky and I was going with a group to the Polish army and I lost, I went to a bathroom on one station and I lost them and I have continued with the train, with another train and I cannot find them. So they put me into a jail and different people have interrogated me in the middle of the night and they always ask me different questions where I lived in Poland and how I got from Poland to Russia and all kinds of stuff. So finally I had an opportunity to talk to the director of, the, of that place, of that jail. He was again a Soviet Jew. I was very scared that I would be sent to some camp in the hinterlands of Russia and I would die from hunger there. So I figured, if I am to die in this war, I would rather die fighting Hitler. So I said to him, listen, if I am supposed to die in this war, please send me to the punishment battalions, to the most dangerous places on the frontier. I would rather die there fighting Hitler than in the hinterland. So he sent me to the Polish army. I was about 10 months in the Polish army during that time, the war ended, and um, I was one day assigned to the battalion headquarters uh, as an orderly. So I had to, like, sweep the floor and uh, heat the stove and so. And while I was doing it, I was humming to myself some Hebrew songs. And the writer of the battalion heard me hum these songs, and he asked me, where do I know these songs from? And I said, before the war, I was a member of Gordonia. So he said, I am also a Gordonist. And he said, the political commissar of our battalion, Boleslav Pszenica, is also a Gordonist. And this was already, the war was ended already. And he said, and we are planning to leave the army and go to Palestine. Would you be interested in doing that too? Of course. So I agreed, and I shed my military clothes, and I was given civilian clothes and a new name, Oizer Kirstein. And as Oizer Kirstein, I went to Krakow. And in Krakow, I participated in a conference of labor Zionists. And then came this episode where we passed the border from Poland to Czechoslovakia, which I had mentioned, and I was given the name of a Greek Jew, Yitzhak Yehovi, 
and I came to Bratislava, and Israel Zilba came to me. Yitzchak, he said, in Budapest there are, are a lot of Jewish refugees, and they need to be organized and move toward Palestine. Go to Budapest. Okay, so I went to Budapest, and I did my work. I went to the houses where there were lots of Jewish refugees, and I talked to them how important it is that we should have a country of our own, and we should all go to Palestine. I took a group of Jews, and we went over the border to Austria, westward. And we were caught, and we were put into jail. And a chaplain from America liberated us. And then I was taken, I was asked to be in the central committee of the labor Zionist youth movement, Noah Halutzim Uchad in Munich. So I worked there. My job was to visit all the groups in DP camps and in towns in Germany and uh, help them organize and uh, keep up their spirits and teach them Hebrew songs and so on and so forth. And I was in a tremendous conflict at that time because on one hand, I was, I wanted to go to Palestine and be a halutz. On the other hand, I had the opportunity to study, which I always had wanted to do. So I became depressed and I got into psychoanalysis and the whole world opened up for me. In 45, in my travels in Germany, I met a woman from my hometown and I recognized her. And she told me she had been in the hometown in Livani when all the Jews, practically all the Jews were killed by the Latvians. And she told me everything that happened. And this was, of course, very terrible news to hear. Um, later, when I was studying in Munich, I think I met once a young a Latvian woman who had met my sister Zilla when she was in the ghetto in Riga. And... Um, I mean, I've been looking, I've been trying to find out I was in Yad Vashem and so on, but uh, there is no, no trace of her and uh, no trace of the rest of my family, of course. Where was I? Yeah, okay, I, I, I was in analysis, and my analyst uh, thought that I was very gifted, and he encouraged me to study psychology and psychoanalysis. And uh, we had a very um, close group of Jewish students in Munich. There were, um, there were hundreds of Jewish uh, youth who had survived the Holocaust or had come from the East and studied in Munich. What was the Jewish, uh, any impressions or, or uh, statements about the Jewish community in Germany in those years, uh, your observations? Most of the people were thinking of themselves of being only temporarily in Germany, although some people did remain, but a very small number remained. And some people went to Israel, some to the United States, some to Canada, to Australia, to South America, and so on. I came to America on the very last day of the Refugee Relief Act, 
which was April 30th, 57. And as I came here, I started looking for a job as a psychotherapist. Um, my experience of the loss of my family and of the Holocaust, I had kind of shut out for um, most of the time until about 10, 15 years ago. And then I, I got more in touch with with the loss, and uh, I've been in therapy, of course, for many years myself, and um, I worked on these things. I've given several talks also about psychological effects of the Holocaust. Um, I've given talks also about Israel's political dilemma and lessons of the Holocaust. And my lesson of the Holocaust my, my two lessons are one that the Jewish people should have a country of their own and two that we should not fall into the pitfall of hatred and chauvinism not imitate the Nazis one of the things that pains me is to see Jews influenced by Nazism I believe that um I believe that the Nazi ideology of uh, my people is more important than anything else. My people, above alles, above everything, uh, is a um, is a uh, very uh, antagonistic to the traditional Jewish values, and uh, it it pains me very much to see Jews that are chauvinistic and to see Jews that don't care about justice and about humanity, but only care about Jews, to me that means that these Jewish minds were poisoned by Nazism. That's how I see it. And uh, I see the war, the war between, it's not only a war, the war was not only about the uh, Jewish uh, uh, people, it was also a war against the Jewish spirit against the Jewish values of love and justice and peace. And uh, I feel that if we want to be good Jews, we have to hold on to our values, to our traditional Jewish values of justice and humanity. And it also pains me very much that um, half or so of the Israeli people don't give a damn about what happens to the Palestinians. I, I see that as un-Jewish, an un-Jewish attitude. To me, to be a real Jew is to be compassionate and to care about justice. After the war, Isaac Seaman devoted much of his life to his work as a therapist. In the 1950s, he worked with Holocaust survivors in a German displaced persons camp on what he called therapeutic education. In the 70s, he began practicing a type of group therapy called theme-centered interaction and led workshops in the United States, Germany, and Israel. 
In the 1980s, he began working with leaders of Arab-Jewish dialogue in Israel and was active with Friends of Peace Now and other organizations. Isaac Zeman was the only member of his immediate family to survive the war. He died in New York City on April 2, 2007. He was survived by his third wife, two children from his second marriage, and five grandchildren. To end this episode, we'll share a song that Isaac sang for his interviewers. He learned it from a young Ukrainian woman when they worked together as teachers in Kazakhstan. Isaac never forgot the words, the melody, the translation, or the woman who sang it to him. Когда простым и нежным взором ласкаешь ты меня, мой друг, необычайно цветным узором земля и небо вспихивают вдруг веселый час. И боль разлуки готов делить с тобой всегда. Давай пожмем друг другу руки и в дальний путь на долгие года. What's the meaning of the song? We are so close that we don't need words to say to each other again and again. Let our tenderness, our friendship, be stronger than, be stronger than passion and more than love. Something like that. To learn more about Isaac Zeman, please visit the podcast's companion website at thosewhowerethere.org. The website includes episode notes, a full transcript, and archival photographs. That's where you can also find our previous episodes and background information on the Fortunoff Video Archive and the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Those Who Were There is a production of the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies, which is housed at the Yale University Library's Manuscripts and Archives Department in New Haven, Connecticut. This second season is a co-production with the Museum of Jewish Heritage, A Living Memorial to the Holocaust, New York's contribution to the global responsibility to never forget. The museum is committed to the crucial mission of educating diverse visitors about Jewish life before, during, and after the Holocaust. This podcast is produced by Nahani Rouse, Eric Marcus, the Fortunoff Archives Director Stephen Naren, and Trevor Walsh, Collections Project Manager at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Thank you to audio engineer Jeff Town. Thanks as well to Christy Bailey Tomachek, Joanna Aruda, Noah Guto Ellis, Samantha Shokin, and Inga Detaya for their assistance. And thank you to Sam Cassow for historical oversight.
and to photo editor Michael Green, genealogist Michael Leclerc, and our social media team, including Christiana Pena, Nick Porter, and Sarah Barber. Liova Gerbine composed our theme music. Special thanks to the Fortunoff family and other donors to the archive for their financial support. I'm Eleanor Risa. Thank you for listening.